You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, I want to invite you now then to join me in the Bible to open the Old Testament, the, the first chunk of the Bible, to Nehemiah chapter 6. And so as we've been walking through this book of the Bible, this Old Testament section of text that includes Ezra and Nehemiah, looking at these three movements of of a leader that God raised up named Zerubbabel, a priest named Ezra, and now Nehemiah, the work of renewal that, that was taking place was led by these people that God was calling them out of exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the, the altar to, that would, they would sacrifice and restore their relationship with God, the, the temple that they would gather together and experience God's presence. And here we in the Amaya, they rebuild the wall. That is the mark of distinction from the outside world. And so this work of renewal that God has been calling his people to here is, is in many ways quite literally a work of being set apart as God's people with God's purpose, hence the building of the wall, a separation from, the, from those that would worship lesser things than the God of the Bible. And up to this point in the story of the Bible, God has delivered his people and their first response to, to prosperity and blessing, as always, is to turn from God, to rebel against God. And so his discipline out of love is that they're, they're taken into captivity in Babylon, but God doesn't forget his promise to renew them and allows them to be restored to return to Jerusalem, which is the story of Esther, Joe, or Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra. And so, so here we are in Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to read chapters, we're going to skim kind of in chapter 6, but we're, we today we're going to read chapter 6 and chapter 8. And so the, the theme that, of renewal and res- restoration and reform of Ezra and Nehemiah, I've tried to put to us in a question. That is, where in your own life do you want or need to experience renewal? I don't mean that as a hypothetical. I don't mean that as, as a question for you to think of abstractly. I mean that concretely. Where in your life do you want more joy? Where in your life do you currently lack contentment? Where in your life do you lack optimism? Where is there brokenness? Where are things that, that, that don't seem right? What are the relationships you want God to restore? What are, what are the things that are out of place in your own life that you want to be made right? And we ask this story, we ask this question because this story is, is, a, is, a, is a historical example of how God delights to answer those prayers of his people. And so I want to walk through chapter 6, 7, and 8 because here's where we want to go from here on. The, the second question that follows that is, where are you currently experiencing renewal? Now, maybe this is maybe one of your first times to spend a Sunday with us, but if you've been walking through Ezra and Nehemiah over the last couple of months, my hope is that Lord, the Lord has already started to answer those prayers. Now, if that's not the case, I want to encourage you. The very beginning of the story of Nehemiah was that he spent several months mourning and lamenting that which was broken before God began to stir in him and others a work of renewal. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe, maybe this question is not quite where you are yet. Maybe you're still just lamenting what's broken. But I also want to think as, as, as the story turns, we see here, and God begins to rebuild this people and their city, there's adversity. One of the primary themes of Nehemiah is how God starts and finishes a work of renewal, and the people who experience, it, it, it experience adversity at every single turn. We saw that it, was, it came from the outside, and then we saw that it came from the inside last chapter. 
So we're going to read all of chapter 6 and most of, or all of chapter 8. We're going to skim chapter 7. You'll notice it's a reprise of chapter 2 of Ezra. And I'll warn you, it's going to probably take like four to five minutes to read the first half of it, about 45 minutes to read 425, not 45, 425. You want to be articulate here, very clear. And so here's what I want to draw your attention to before we begin. It's in chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll bring it up on the screen. And it says this, that the, the act of renewal, that the things come to completion, we'll get there in chapter 8. Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Okay, so first day of the week. That's fairly significant for Christians. A big thing happened on the first day of the week. It's a kind of a thing. So it's Sunday, right? That's today gathering together. It says, and he, that is Ezra the priest, read from it, that is the law, the scripture, God's word, facing the square before the water gate from early morning, that's around 6 a.m. until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were what? Attentive to the book of the law. So we're going to walk, it's going to take about eight to 10 minutes to walk through this. And I want you to know, I say this as often as I can, I want to stretch your attention span for the Bible. Um, and, and if you find yourself thinking this is a bit too much, hey man, uh, could be, we could have started six and, and ended at lunch, right? So eight to 10 minutes, it seems like a fair deal. And, and I, I want to pray that we're attentive to this, but, but I, want to, I, want to, I want to just encourage you, if you find yourself drifting off in the middle of this, if you find yourself spacing out and you go someplace warm with palm trees, enjoy it, right? But when you come back, draw your, draw, maybe like pay special attention to the thing that gets your attention back onto the text and be, be encouraged. We're a people that are regularly coming back to God's word. We're people that are regularly wandering off and returning back to hear from the Lord. So I'm going to begin in chapter 6. We'll read it together. A story of renewal, adversity that's experienced, uh, an account of all those that experienced renewal and the celebration that God has brought restoration to his people. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakephirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave work and, or while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done. For you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. 
But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in his way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Now what you'll notice here is similar to Ezra chapter 2 a list of the returned exiles, a proper accounting of all the people. You'll see the number, the total in verse 66, 42,360, matches the one you find in Ezra chapter 2. An account of the temple servants, Levites, the sons of Solomon's servants, the temple servants, and even those who maybe, maybe they didn't have a lineage that they knew of. They said they were counted too. So in verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive 
to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it all, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to your God, or to, holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out. And brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he, that is Ezra, read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. I pray that God would add blessing and understanding to the reading of his word. I pray that it would become more than ink on a page and it would actually become the very words of God to the people of God. 
If you'll recall, as we walk through this book, the overriding theme of Ezra and Nehemiah is one of a second exodus. So if you go back to the book of Exodus, one of the first stories is how God delivers his people and gives them a promised land with a promise to to bless them and to multiply them. And the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah is similar. You even heard the language of coming out of captivity that sounds a lot like the first exodus. But one of the things that comes with the first exodus is, as so many of you know, the book of Numbers. Now, don't be scared by the book of Numbers. There are some great genealogies in the Bible. Numbers has a few of them. But one of them is at the very beginning, a census of the book of Numbers, and at the end of the book of Numbers. That is a picture of those who were delivered out of captivity and those who made it to the promised land. Counting was a way of of giving God glory for the way that he delivered them. And so, in similar fashion, if you look at Ezra chapter 2, you have a beginning kind of a census. And then here, at the the end of this major section, from Ezra 2 all the way to here, is, is kind of the story of rebuilding and restoration that concludes with, what? Another census. An accounting of all the people that God had blessed. And so, in this second exodus, what happens when they get where they're going? What do they do? Did you catch it in chapter 8? They restore a practice of celebration of God's deliverance through the wilderness, that is, the Feast of Booths. Now, we don't use the word booth. The word we would use for a temporary dwelling is like a tent, right? Think of it as it's the Feast of Tents. It's the camping feast, right? Everyone goes camping to commemorate back in the day when, they, when camping was just life, right? Because after all, that's what makes camping fun, Eventually, you stop camping, right? <laughs> and so you see the theme of God's deliverance, not only from the exodus, but a reliving this work of renewal and restoration that, that they commemorate with great rejoicing. All on the back of great opposition. Do you hear the language in chapter 6? The theme of chapter Six is built around five different uses of the same word. Did you see the word frightened or made afraid? It shows up five different times. That is to say that this work of renewal ultimately is is being opposed from the outside by people who want to scare them into stopping. So last week we saw that, that, that God was faithful, that God delivered all of his people that God had carried them out of captivity. But then there was opposition from the inside and opposition from the outside. There was opposition that came from both the people who wanted to stop the work of renewal, but we saw last week there was a work of opposition that came from the greed of the people on the inside. And so they, their first response was to take advantage in the midst of struggle of the people around them. And what we find out is Nehemiah led them through this. It led them through a work of renewal. It's a a beautiful picture of how Nehemiah takes his privilege and wealth and and is willing to forsake it to bless others. Think of it this way. In in Nehemiah chapter 5, the opposition from the inside, their own greed, was opposed by Nehemiah leading them through it because there's a weird thing that happens that when you own things, things start to own you. And generosity is one of the most powerful ways and weapons to say this thing doesn't own me. But, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, the opposition doesn't start. 
And so this week, we see that this work of covenant renewal that takes place for the rest of the story, right, all the way to the end of Nehemiah, and it comes in phases. Next week, we'll see it comes in the work and act of the people to confess their sin, and then after that, you see a a renewal of their commitment to to be faithful to God. But in chapter 6, you see the, the, the first kind of movement of what the section of text we read, the end of this first large section since Ezra chapter 2, is the theme of perseverance through adversity, It might even be right to say perseverance through threats, perseverance through distraction. And through it, the the work of renewal that that Nehemiah leads them through climaxes when the people around them, do you see it beginning in the section of, starts in verse 15, the wall was finished, 52 days, and when the enemies had heard of it, those are all the people who were taunting and threatening and, and, and conspiring against to scare them, all the nations around us were what? Afraid. Right? Did you hear it? Like, you hear the, the, the prophetic words of the psalmist. Like, may, may the one who lay, like, sets a trap for God's people fall into his own pit. Right? They were trying to scare Nehemiah and others. And what happened? God, God, was, God was faithful to fulfill this promise of renewal such that the fear that they meant to impose, they experienced themselves. And what did they claim that had happened? Did they say, oh, man, these Israelites are something special. They're really awesome. No, they perceived that, in fact, the Israelites were not that impressive. But instead, it says they had concluded in verse 16 that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So think of this first section as a reminder for us to persevere because God is faithful to keep his promise to bring renewal. God will not leave his people. And so you and I are invited to to take comfort in the fact that we are a remnant of people. Notice the census is 42,000 in both Ezra 2 and in the chapter we just read. That is a fraction of the people that came out of the promised land and those that were exiled to Babylon. That is a remnant. That's the word you'll hear used. And yet God delights to use this small little remnant. And they can persevere because they know God's going to be faithful to do just that. And so the enemies attempt by writing letters that they want to frighten them with. They have, starting in verse 10, there's prophets that try to deceive them in order to frighten them. And even when the wall is completed in verse 15, Tobiah writes more letters in order to do what? Frighten them again. And yet in all of this, Nehemiah acts for the safety of the people. And we see this in the beginning of chapter 7. So the work of renewal is completed. The work of rebuilding the wall is completed. But it is completed in the midst of great adversity. In the midst of, I would offer, great fear. And the people who meant to stir up fear were the ones that by God's grace were the ones who were afraid by the end of the story. The wall is completed, but it's done in the midst of opposition. And the theme that runs through it is the word fear. So the strength and the security of this project is remarkable. And it points to God's work, especially because it was done in the midst of intimidation. And yet God was faithful to sustain his people, to renew them, to protect them. And that's the confidence Nehemiah has. And that, my friend, is the confidence you and I can have. In that place where you long for renewal, I know it doesn't seem like it right now. The Lord will not leave you there. And you'll say, well, how do you know that? That's an arrogant thing to say. 
I have a long, long, long account, thousands of years, thousands of years of history where people just like you and just like me were sure that God was done with them. And yet this story is one of restoration, of renewal. And they're able to be persistent. So some of the greatest hits of Nehemiah are then these chapters. I don't know if you caught that, right? The very first verses of chapter 6. Hey, come, meet. Let's, let's stop and let's go to the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And, and here we go. This is one of the great quotes. If you want to memorize some quotes or some good ones in here, verse 3. And he sent to the message, he's like, I'm doing a great work. I'm not coming down. All right, the picture is that he's up there clean, like building the wall, right? Maybe like the rest of them, holding a tool to, to build the wall and also holding a sword. And they come and say, hey, come on, take a break. And he says, I cannot come down. I will not stop what God has called me to. I will not stop this work of renewal. And his persistence, his focus, allows them to complete the whole thing, to keep the, the whole group of people united to finish in 52 days. And the people who are against him want him to come off the wall. Here's me just make a few broad observations here. That thing you're praying for, the place where you long for renewal, if it hasn't happened already, there are other people who, who want to do everything they can to stop it. People hate it. They hate it when you refuse to worship their idols. They can't stand it. When you say, God alone is my refuge and strength, all the other people who want to sell you false refuges, right, are frustrated. And they will do anything they can to distract you. In this case, to scare you. And yet he says, I won't be distracted. I won't come off this wall. It's a principle for us to live by, I think, because wherever you, you need something more than God's renewing presence, then you probably shouldn't have it. Because it's only when you know and acknowledge and experience your need for God's renewing presence and work in your life that you're actually ready to be present and faithful in all of the areas of life that need renewal. And you come to find out that there is nothing better than the sustaining mercy of God that's new every morning. And that will be our eternity. But friend, let me warn you, to believe that, to long for that, is to invite others to hate it. We talked about this work of renewal even in the last 20 months, right? Like, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, hasn't there been a number of temptations to be excited about other things? Haven't there been a plethora of invitation to be outraged about other things? Have you felt that pull? And even if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, haven't Christians yelled a whole lot in the last year and a half about things that are not Christ? And notice the work of renewal that we are called into, that God has promised to fulfill, that he will promise to deliver us, is the thing. That's it. It's the only thing that will last. And so, as people come, maybe to criticize the way you're working on your wall, right? They see that and, and maybe out of envy or covetousness want to start up. Do you hear that? Start rumors about you? Hey, they're actually just, they're actually just have selfish motives. It was his trust in the Lord that allowed him to persevere. Such that the glory didn't go to Nehemiah, but did you catch it? It went to the Lord. One commentary in a 
speaks of this and illustrates even in other places in the Bible where this is true. You see, in order for God to get the glory and the nations to love and revere him and experience his renewing presence, the Lord is creative and wise to use things that won't steal his glory. Now, we don't like that. One of the most powerful illustrating points is the story of David and Goliath, right? Goliath comes out and taunts God's people day in and day out. And the people conclude to themselves that God needs to raise up someone big enough and we need to find someone big enough and strong enough to defeat the enemy. And what we find out in that story, that's not true at all. God, it, well, the problem wasn't that God hadn't brought out someone big enough. The problem was that God hadn't brought out someone small enough. And it was only when the, like the, the shepherd boy with, with a sling and some rocks shows up that when it happens and the, and the giant falls, they have no choice but to go like, I mean, well, again, what, what would you do if, if it was all about David? What, what should we all do? Hey let's, hey, let's disband the army and let's just get kids with rocks. That's a great idea, right? <laughs> but if you surmise, something else must be happening here. There is a God who brings renewal, rescue, and deliverance, and he delights to use the weak he delights to use the shameful, the insignificant things. And that's the story of God's deliverance. We regularly look to the small and the weak to confound the strength of the world. Now, the story bears out of David, of course. He lets that go to his head. And I imagine Nehemiah and his people were also tempted to do the same. But we're invited to remember that God isn't looking for people strong enough to experience renewal. God is looking for people who are weak enough to experience renewal. God is drawn to himself people who know that apart from the majesty of God and his presence to restore us, we are without hope. Because after all, if God was just bringing a movement of really strong, wise, and awesome people, the world wouldn't be shocked by that. It would make too much sense. Well, of course all these Christians have a powerful movement. They have a lot of influence and money, and they have a lot of, a lot of power, and they have a lot of Right? They have, they, have a, they have a big crowd and hordes of people to back it up. It's more amazing when you think, like, who are these people? And the world is shocked. And so we're invited to recall that God is looking for people who are weak enough and frail enough so that when God restores them and renews them, the people around will have no other option but to give it a supernatural, expecta- a, a, a supernatural explanation. So here's the, the theme of the second passage here. The second section here is chapter 7. We skimmed through it because I don't feel the need to like butcher all these beautiful Hebrew names in front of you for what surely would be three or four minutes. But we see here is something powerful. The goal of the genealogies, and this is true throughout the Old Testament. And here this is also true as we begin our walk through the gospel of Matthew in the season of Christmas. It starts with what? A genealogy. And what's the point of a genealogy? The point of counting is this to make sure of God's people's continuity with the past. We're always tempted to think our generation is the fill in the blank, right? And then we use superlatives, right? Good or bad, right? This generation now, like, you know, they're, they are the worst, right? Which is a strange sort of like narcissism of saying, yeah, well, we achieved something, right? Or, like, this is the best. What we find is that when, when God's sovereign over history, it tends to work in, in cycles. It tends to work in patterns so that the, the work of God would be evident. 
And in this case, he gives a thorough list so that we would know God delivers people, not strangers, actual people. And part of the work of renewal is stopping to count. It's stopping to think, these are the people. This is it. And so Nehemiah enrolls at genealogy, counts well. He ends up using, as we, as we think, right, Ezra the scribe, good, the, the good bean counter. Everyone needs one, only one, right? And so like Ezra had made the thorough list in chapter 2 of, his, of, of Ezra before he even stepped on. And, and here we see kind of a, a reprise of it. And so Jerusalem then is put under the charge of Hanani and Hananiah. And then there's a, a list, as if to say this, those who experience God's presence, those who experience renewal, become keenly aware of the people around them experiencing it as well and are sure to count them and to celebrate them. I think one profound encouragement that comes here, and I said this in the first list, is this. One of our greatest fears, right? One of our greatest fears is that we're nobody. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what like kind of lashing out and, and, and very public acts of violence are our way of saying we'd rather be remembered for evil, we'd rather be notorious than forgotten. And every morning you and I wake up and there's this, like there's an ache that we're not known, that we're forgotten, that our life is meaningless. No one cares. And you might even hear that echo, right? No one would miss me if I was gone. And there are painfully long and boring lists all throughout the Old Testament to refute that. <laughs> I, if, if I had the skills, I would read through all of these, and, and the, every verse I would stop and say, see, you're wrong. In God's work of renewal, you are known. You are not forgotten. And that's what's crazy, because many of you probably can't name your great-great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother. And that's probably going to be true of us. We will, we will be forgotten a lot sooner than we wish, right? Won't it, even the people, like, surely our family, nope, not even them, right? Like, I, I challenge you to write a family tree, right, without, without the help of some online help, right? Just write a family tree off of memory, and you probably can't go more than about, I don't know, two or three, two or three branches back. That is not true of God's family. You are not forgotten, you are known Think of it this way, that place where you long for renewal and restoration is a place that the Lord hears, knows, and we will spend all of eternity recalling his faithfulness to us in that place. You're on a list. Don't worry if other people don't know you, right? How cool would it be to be on a list thousands of years from now that people can't pronounce, right? Just an anonymous person on a list, thousands of years from now. And that would encourage people to go, God was faithful then, he'll be faithful to me as well. So this list represents the status of a community being renewed and reformed. Here's what I would tell to you, so do our lists. So this for us is a picture, I would tell you, of our church. It's a picture of God's people on the earth. It's a picture of covenant membership. It's a picture of what it means to say these are the people who have been made new in Christ. And I know there's something in us that doesn't want to be excluded from any list. Well, don't be discouraged by that. This list is thousands of years old, but like, here's the fun part. And if you think in terms of the return to exiles, 
we're on the list now too. It says 42,000, but if you start counting all the people who have new life in Christ, the list you can't count. In fact, Revelation says that there'll be an assembly of all the redeemed that will be be beyond our ability to count. But two things, think of it this way. That list in chapter 7 is what we long for in church membership. It's not, we're not looking for opportunities to say you're excluded. We're looking for opportunities to celebrate renewal. Right? Look around you. Look. Like we could say, look at these people who we're going to spend. I mean, this will blow your mind. Membership for us is a tangible way to celebrate. These are the people you will spend eternity with. Eternity. Forever. Forever and ever. And then forever. Right? And so that's the picture of of renewal, is that God redeems a people, and he never forgets them. If you see kind of the list, right, like of how it's kind of sorted out, you see it in chapter 8 as well, those two separate lists I I mentioned that Ezra starts to lead. Think of like as as they're separated there and as their list, here's what I want to encourage you, that's their gospel community. Right? This is how we see gospel community. The people who are like, this is my clan, this is my people, these are the people that we're experiencing renewal together. That's, that's all it is. It's our way of saying we're doing this together. And so in, in verse 4 of chapter 8, did you catch that? Ezra the scribe had a platform, and, and there's a list of people that are kind of like guiding this, right? Verse 7, another list of people. And what did they do? They helped. Did you catch that? In verse 7 of chapter 8, they helped the people to do what? to understand the law, to understand while they remained where they were. So as Ezra was leading, there were these, like, these small groups that popped up where, where Ezra and, and, and evidently Nehemiah like, helped say, hey, go help those people to understand God's story of grace. It leads us to the last chapter. Renewal will include understanding. That's the word you hear re- repeated in, in chapter 7. It will include understanding, and it will include not just understanding God's word to us, but commemorating his faithfulness to us in the wilderness. Let me unpack that. The first section is just that, that people celebrate God's faithfulness by by inviting Ezra to, to read for six hours the Scripture. For six hours. Now, the, the operative word in chapter 8, and I encourage you, this is your homework, go find how many times the word they shows up. And look for the word they. So verse 4, I'll give you a hint on this one. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. Now, where'd that wooden platform come from? Check that out. They had made it. Go back to verse 1 of that chapter. All the people gathered as one man, right? So chapter 7 ends. They're all counted and they're scattered, but they gather together for some purpose. And then it says in that second sentence, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. I want you to see a work of renewal is evidenced by the fact that people long to be nourished by God's word. Think of it this way. Every given Sunday that we get an opportunity by God's grace Lord willing, to gather in this place, someone like me or someone else is going to stand up, open the Bible, and try to, as we see that, that theme of understanding, help people understand, right? Understand just how good God is, just how faithful God is. Understand just how, how, how God is going to bring his promises to pass, even though everything this week has told you the opposite, and help people to understand. And that's a great grace. 
If someone would, would stand up and gather people and expound upon and help people understand God's word, that's great. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a work of renewal like we find here in chapter 8. It's all great when a person stands up and says, hey, I have something that I want to encourage you with. I want to help you understand. It is a miraculous work of, of renewal when the people demand it. When people gather and say, nourish me. I can't find sustenance. I can't find satisfaction in this world. I need a word from beyond. I need to hear from God. And when you get a group of people, every, every opportunity they get, and, and the longing of their heart isn't to be entertained, it isn't to be distracted, it isn't to have their own idols propped up, but to be renewed and restored by a divine word, now you're on to something. Now you're experiencing an act of restoration and renewal. Paul tells Timothy this in the New Testament. Ultimately, the, the holder of sound doctrine, like the police force of sound doctrine, isn't preachers. It isn't pastors and elders. It isn't. He says that what's going to happen, and the, and the real problem is that, is that one day people are going to raise up for themselves teachers that will tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. So he said, it's like the problem isn't they'll be false teachers. That's not the problem. He's like, that's a given. That's going to happen. The problem is that there'll actually be people who long for it. And the minute we wish someone would open this book and just simply tell us what we want to hear is the minute we've stopped to experience supernatural renewal, we're being satisfied with this world. And so notice, they, they call for it. Right? Think of, think of that's again, you get a picture of God's people. Get a picture of what Connection Church is. We're the people that are like, that's great, that's great. Tell me the good stuff, right? Now give me to give me to the give me to the part where I hear about who God is and what God has done, right? And they build a platform for him. They set him up. Not again, not because Ezra is anything special, but because he has scripture. He has a word of grace, a word of God's deliverance. It restores them, it renews them. But if you see in the section from verse 9 to verse 12, we saw this in Ezra as well. Did you see their first response? So Ezra presumably reads the book of the law and, and, and reads of how God has delivered them and given them mercy and given them chance after chance. God hasn't failed them. God's continued to re renew them and restore them. And what was their first response? Did you catch that? They wept. They mourned. And we saw this in Ezra there's always a temptation in, in, in at least half of us, if not all of us, to think that the good life is back in the good old days, right? Like, if I could just go back. Now, you saw this, and the, the people wandering through the, the desert, they were like, we, we would rather go back to Egypt, right? We would, rather, we would rather suffer in slavery in Egypt than die out here in the wilderness. And rather than thank God for the free food falling out of the sky, they were like, man, it was really better when we, when we were back in slavery, and notice, this is, the, this is the status of the human heart. When God works and does something, our first response is to think the, real, the good life, real joy, is found somewhere in the, in the future or the past. And they actually wept and mourned. And what happened? They actually had to come along. And here's another one of those great, greatest hits of Nehemiah, right? Did you catch it? He says, don't mourn, don't weep. This is a holy day. Stop your weeping. Instead, what does he say in verse 10? Do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. If the Lord doesn't grant you the joy in knowing that you belong to him, it really doesn't matter. And so they feast and celebrate. 
I think that also is our calling is to, to regularly encourage one another. Hey, stop. Stop thinking that thing is really going to give you what you want. God alone invented joy. He's the one who can get you it. It was his idea. He knows how to make it perfectly. And he says, be quiet. <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't know if I'd recommend that personally. Uh, but there's this sense in which they, they respond to grief by saying, the Lord has something for us. And he, the joy that comes from him is where we will find our strength. And where do they find it? Again, hear the language of a gospel community, right? That, that word, they had understood the words that were declared to them. What do they do next? It says they celebrated the Feast of Booths. I already mentioned that earlier, but think of it. It's a feast of camping, right? They were commemorating when they were in the wilderness and they were living in tents. They were living in tents and they were commanded by Moses to, to not ever forget that. Remember what it was like when you didn't have a home. Because here's the thing that happens when you don't have a home. Here's the thing that happens when you don't have a land, a people, a place. You have to find refuge somewhere. And the people of God were invited to commemorate and remember that their refuge was not made of brick and mortar. Their refuge was not a nation state. Their refuge was not a nationality or ethnicity. Their refuge was the Lord. And they had an entire generation of people who died in the wilderness because they rejected it. And so they're meant to commemorate what was, strangely, an, an awful time in their history. They're meant to commemorate that God had delivered them. And it caused them to rejoice. But just see the mystery in that. Why would they commemorate such a difficult time? Why would they commemorate such an, an awful and a, a, a series of time that was marked by wandering? Why? Because that's where the Lord met them. That was where the Lord sustained them. And for some of you, it's hard to imagine but the Lord will be faithful, and years, if not decades from now, you will commemorate the awful things you're experiencing now. And you'll think, why would I do that? I just want to get out of this, right? You'll commemorate it because this awful moment, this awful time and place, this is where the Lord will meet you. And I know you can't see it now, but Ezra and Nehemiah Remind us of this. A day is coming when you will look back, and this will blow your mind, and you will celebrate with fondness the misery of, of the present life. You'll be like, remember those days? Wow. Do you remember how the Lord met us there? For the Christian, we're constantly living in a tent. For the Christian, our life is one of being in a tabernacle, a, a temporary dwelling place. For the Christian, we are constantly remembering our wandering. Why would we do that? Why, like, why, would, why would we knowingly or willingly ruminate on misery? If you're new to this, if you're, maybe, maybe you're not a believer, you're going to find something interesting about Christians. We talk about death a lot, and that's morbid and morose. And I know, that's weird. And you'll think, why would people like that, why would, they, why would they intentionally talk about deep, dark, and awful things like sin and, and, like, and like wandering? and like why, why would they think about this? Why? Because it's in those places of misery that we know the Lord has met us. Why would we open an ancient book to be reminded of God's faithful, faithfulness to us in the wilderness? Why would they sit and listen to it for six hours? Because they needed to be reminded that God hadn't forgotten them. 
And renewal includes when we commemorate God's faithfulness to us in the wilderness. Why would we rehearse our sorrow? Because we know that's when and where God works. When you pulled into the parking lot, there was a big metal cross right outside the building. An emblem of suffering and shame, we sing. An emblem of imperial torture. And you might think, why on earth would people, why would people want to commemorate that? Why would people want to exalt and rehearse such suffering? Why would we do that? Friend, hear the good news. We have no problem ruminating on the cross because it was through the cross that we received redemption. That through suffering, that's where God was present. The mystery of the incarnation that we celebrate at Advent is that God came to be with us and came to suffer. And so we, strangely, have no problem celebrating a cross because what the world thinks is foolish and shameful we realize is a symbol of God's presence. Jesus came to make things new. Don't you remember one of the arguments he had with the Pharisees about the temple? They're like, hey, this is a sacred place. And he says, don't you worry about this. I'll tear this thing down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And that infuriated them. Because they're like, what do you, what do you mean? You're going you're to tear this temple down? That's the temple that they rebuilt right here in Ezra and Nehemiah. You're going to tear it down? It took us years to build that temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? He had no problem talking about the destruction of the temple. Why? Because on the third day, he would rise victorious over the greatest wilderness of sin, death, and hell. He says, I'm coming to make things new. And in fact, here are the keys. Count the people who are a part of it. There's a new movement that I'm starting that celebrates God's deliverance through suffering. Let me finish with this. Do you hear in chapter 6 what the people wanted? They said, Nehemiah, come down from there. Nehemiah, come down from there. I want to read to you from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And they brought him, that is Jesus, to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and they divided his garments among him, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription on the charge against him said, this is the king of the Jews. You hear it? What was the accusation against Nehemiah? You think you're a king. People don't like that. And when they crucified them between two robbers, one on his right and his left, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. And listen to what they said. Ha-ha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him and said to one another, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Did you hear the greatest hits from Nehemiah from chapter 6? Did you hear the derision given to Jesus? If you're so great, come down. Come down among us. What did Nehemiah say, and what does Jesus say from that cross? I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. And he stayed on that cross. He fought the temptation to come down that cross until one of his last words was what? Now it is finished. 
It's finished. We can commemorate the wilderness. We can commemorate the cross. We can even commemorate death because we know that Jesus has renewed us, delivered us from all of them. Can you hear the jeering people around Jesus? Can you hear him looking down and saying, I'm not coming down. I've got a work of renewal. I can't stop. There's a temple I'm rebuilding. I'm counting up the people that will be restored and renewed. And now we get to celebrate that. I mean, I'll end with this. Didn't, didn't you see that last week? I'm so grateful last week uh, we got to celebrate Remington's baptism. There was a sermon he preached to us last week that it's been like rumin- I just kind of ruminating on all week. But stop for just a minute. If, that, if you were from the outside and you saw it, think of how you might see it. You're like, you might walk away going like, uh, why was that guy like, happy about the other dude trying to drown him. Like, right? Like, why? That seems strange, right? Why would these people celebrate? They had, like, reenacted a drowning, and everyone clapped? What is this? Do you hear it? For Christians, even facing death and reality, underwater and six feet under is something we can commemorate. Because we know the Lord is faithful. He won't abandon us. He won't leave us. And as sure as Jesus was raised from the dead, so also those in Christ will be raised as well. Do you hear it? He's faithful to keep his promise to renew us. Let's celebrate that together. Let's pray and thank him for it. Jesus, thank you that you are good and merciful to us. Thank you that you are kind. Thank you that... (laughs) That as the, as the derision echoed and people were invited to were tempting you or taunting you but coming down from the cross, thank you for our sake, you said no. Thank you for our sake, just like Nehemiah, you, you said, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down from this work of renewal I'm doing. Thank you that that gives us comfort, even for those of us in this, in, in this room this morning who experience great turmoil and Maybe for those of us where even now we're in despair, would you move towards us in comfort so miraculously and supernaturally that years from now we'd look back and actually marvel at how close you were to us in this? Thank you that you did that for us in Jesus Christ, in our deepest despair and longing, with our deepest fears for death and punishment. You have come and taken both in our place. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you that you have renewed us and drawn us to yourself and back to the Father. Thank you that now we can think about the wilderness of sin and death and and actually celebrate it in some strange way because we know that that wasn't the end. We know that you will make all things new just as you have restored these people. You'll drag us all the way home. You'll carry us there like a lost sheep, and celebrate as we return. Thank you. This is all true for us. Thank you for this work of renewal finished for us in Jesus. Amen.